This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. This is the first episode in season four of the podcast. In this season, we'll be addressing some of the most commonly asked questions that visitors have at Mesa Verde National Park. We'll be talking about where the ancestral Pueblo people lived prior to building their communities and homes on the Mesa Tops and in the alcoves. We'll talk about why the cliff dwellings were constructed and why they tend to get all the attention, even though they weren't the largest communities in the region. We'll be talking about rock art, petroglyphs and pictographs, and what these forms of communication may have meant and still mean to the descendants of Mesa Verde. And finally, we'll be talking about where the people went as they continued their generational migrations out of Mesa Verde and into their communities today. Throughout this season, we're going to be hearing the voices of indigenous people who represent just a few of the diverse ethnic and linguistic groups that trace their culture and ancestry back to Mesa Verde. And in order to better understand some of the tribal, linguistic, and geographical names you'll be hearing, we're going to start with a quick crash course in the diversity of the people of the Southwest. The entire North American continent has been populated by diverse groups of people for thousands of years. The Mesa Verde region alone has been home to various tribal groups, including the ancestors of the Navajo, the Ute, the Apache, and the ancestral Pueblo people. And because of that, many tribal groups and tribal nations trace their ancestry and culture back to these lands today. Specifically in this season, we'll be talking about the ancestral Pueblo people and their descendants. However, it's important to note that the Navajo, who live in Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico, the Ute Mountain Ute, who live in Colorado and Utah, the Southern Ute, who live in Colorado, the Northern Ute, who live in Utah, and the Hickoria Apache Nation, who live in New Mexico today, have all been neighboring communities throughout the Mesa Verde region through time. Now, speaking specifically about the ancestral Pueblo people, their descendants are comprised of 21 tribal groups, the Hopi, the Zuni, and the 19 Pueblos in New Mexico and Texas and there are six language groups that bond specific tribes together. First, there are the Hopi people who live on the first, second, and third mesas of the Hopi lands in Arizona, who speak the Hopi language. Next, there are the Zuni who live in Western New Mexico and who speak the Zuni language. Next, there are the Keres-speaking Pueblos of Cochiti, San Felipe, Kewa or Santa Domingo, Santa Ana, Acoma, Laguna, and Zia, located along the Rio Grande in central New Mexico. Next are the Tiwa-speaking pueblos of Taos, Picaris, Isleta, and Sandia, also along the Rio Grande, as well as the Pueblo of Isleta del Sur in Texas. Then the Tewa-speaking pueblos of Nambe, Poaque, San Ildefonso, Okeawinge, Santa Clara, and Tezuki, also along the Rio Grande, as well as one community that lives on the first mesa at Hopi. And finally, the Toa-speaking Pueblo of Jemez, also along the Rio Grande in central New Mexico. Now, if you aren't familiar with the Southwest, I imagine that this can seem like a lot of information and names all at once. But acknowledging and working to understand the diverse groups of people who have come from Mesa Verde is crucial to understanding Mesa Verde itself. Don't worry, throughout the season, we'll have some refreshers on these names, groups, and places, and we'll be hearing from folks who belong to these groups and we'll be sharing what it means to belong to these diverse cultures. 
Now let's get into our first topic of the season. Where did the people come from before building their communities at Mesa Verde? If you grew up going to public school in the United States, it's likely that you learned about the Bering Land Bridge and the Great Migration that occurred thousands of years ago, which brought people to this part of the world. In modern times, we tend to rely on ways of knowing things or ways of understanding things that have been passed down by European descendant people. And this includes our understanding of science and history, archaeology and anthropology. However, many indigenous peoples around the world, such as those in the American Southwest, rely on their own oral histories and oral traditions, which have been passed down from generation to generation. These oral histories and traditions are just as valid as the archaeological record. And so in this episode, we'll be looking at how this modern archaeological hypothesis of the Bering Land Bridge compares to that of the oral traditions that live on today. A lot of different people have been working at this idea, kind of this question of how the Americas, the, the Western Hemisphere, were very initially populated sometime during the end of the last Ice Age, right at the end of the Pleistocene period. This is Dr. Toon. My name is Jesse Toon, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Fort Lewis College. And we're going to take a few steps, well, more than a few steps, how about a running leap back in time here to talk about how the ancestors of the ancestors at Mesa Verde came to this high desert region in the southwest. As of today, we have a number of different kind of working hypotheses. The first and the most long-standing hypothesis about how the North and South American continents became populated is, like we said before, one you probably learned about in high school. The idea of the Bering Land Bridge, right? This idea basically says that people moved from somewhere in Asia to the northeast across what's now the Bering Strait. This would have taken place between 15 and 18,000 years ago. As Jesse said, started at the end of the Pleistocene period. And this is a huge expanse of land, many miles north-south as well as east-west. We're not talking about this narrow little strip of land that we oftentimes would think of today in terms of a bridge, but rather a thousand kilometers north-south, uh, all the way from Russia to, to the Canadian border, basically, would have been considered Beringia. And so people would have moved through this region of Beringia into what's now North America, as the ice sheets were melting, and generations of those folks would have continued to move south over time, through what we now know as interior Canada, into what's now the continental United States, and even farther down into Central and South America after that. According to this hypothesis, all using interior routes to make these generations-long journeys. Now, the second hypothesis. And this is one of the newer hypotheses that people are really working on today. It's very similar as it still involves Beringia. However, this is the idea of a coastal migration. Along the coast of the Beringian landmass. And it basically says that this initial group of people moved out of far eastern Asia. Uh, you can kind of think of like the Japanese archipelago area. And they were a coastally adapted group of people, right? They were used to living off of coastal environments. Off of resources from the ocean, from the sea and slowly migrated and moved up north. Following the Pacific coast, along what would have been the coast of Beringia into Alaska. Down the Pacific coast of Canada and the United States. Continuing to move farther south. And occasionally moving inland to settle more continental areas uh, away from the coast. And then finally, the third hypothesis. 
the third hypothesis that people really talk about currently is the Solutrian hypothesis. And basically what that is saying is that there was a population of people in the Iberian Peninsula. What's today known as Spain and Portugal? During a time period that archaeologists refer to as the Solutrian period and the Solutrian culture. And this would have been about 20,000 years ago. Give or take a few thousand years. Actually moved west from Europe. Following the frozen North Atlantic, using the ice to guide them, and rafting or kayaking, basically moving west into North America from Europe. However... Now, this third idea, the Solutrian hypothesis, really is the weakest out of the three of these scenarios, in that there's just not very good archaeological support. There's not very good genetic or linguistic support or even oral histories of indigenous peoples today. None of these data sets, if you want to think about them like that, really provide compelling support for this idea that people coming out of the Salutrian culture were the actual first occupants of the Americas. So let's focus on those first two ideas, the inland and coastal migration routes along and through Beringia. Now this idea of moving out of Asia and into this part of the world isn't just like going for a road trip today. We're talking about many human generations that it would have taken for people to slowly move across this landscape. It wasn't necessarily a group of people picked up camp and and started walking towards the horizon. Remember that these were human communities with established cultures and social structures that would have influenced their movements across this new landscape. What we're really talking about here with these types of human migrations is population expansion and fissioning into new populations and new groups, social dynamics at play here. We're talking about stresses on local resources and small subpopulations having to split off and and access different types of resources. And this is all happening across many thousands of years. So we're talking about movement of people that is taking place over 10,000 years or so, sometime between about 20,000 and 25,000 years ago, a population of people became isolated and separated from their ancestors somewhere in South Central Asia. And then sometime between about 14 and 15,000 years ago, we finally start seeing people show up in what's now interior Alaska. And then from there, moving south uh, once the ice sheets really start to melt. And by 13,000 years ago, people are inhabiting pretty much all of North America and probably much of Central and South America as well. And because this so-called Bering Land Bridge, or Beringia, isn't a place that we can visit today, as it has long since been buried beneath the sea, this time in history can seem like a small blip like people just walking across the bridge from one continent to another. But it's important to remember that this is a very significant chapter in human history. There were generations and generations of people setting down roots, building up communities and new ways of life. We're talking about people just like us, but just, you know, a few thousand years in the past, 10, 20,000 years ago in the past. And even though we're talking about great expanses of time, these populations of people are still ancestral to people living today. And what's truly amazing is that even though so much of the archaeological record is buried beneath the ocean and will likely never be studied, there are people whose oral histories and traditions tell of this truly significant chapter in human history. 
So when you ask about the migration and where they came from, it's, it's really not a simple answer. If you've listened to previous seasons of this podcast, you remember that migration is a key part of the history and cultural identities of many of the descendant groups of Mesa Verde. That voice you just heard is Stuart Koyamtiwa. My name is Stuart B. Koyamtiwa. The B stands for Bruce. I am honored to be named after my only two uncles in my immediate family, Stuart and Bruce. And Stuart is from Hot Villa at Hopi, located on the Third Mesa. For the last 20 years, Stuart has worked alongside a number of advisors in the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office. What we try to do from the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office is try to embrace science and our own cultural histories and knowledge to kind of bring sense to how Hopi people came to their current location. Like Stuart said, the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office works with scientists, archaeologists, and anthropologists to kind of marry oral histories and cultural knowledge of the Hopi people with scientific research being done about their history. And this is important because historically, scientists around the world have had a difficult time reaching out and considering cultural knowledge and oral histories of indigenous people as part of scientific research. Some of what I am about to tell you may or may not be backed by science. Science meaning research or studies on people from anthropologists and archaeologists in the social science field. Now, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, each of the descendant tribes of Mesa Verde are diverse groups, sometimes even within a single tribe. Hopi, for example. So Hopi is comprised of an amalgam of clans that have come together to form this Hopi cultural system that we now live in. There are three geographic areas of Hopi, first, second, and third mesa. And each mesa is home to different clans and villages, each with its own ancestry and oral history. There are actually two clan groups that make up the current cultural system at Hopi. Those people and clans that have come from the south, Balakwapi people, and those people that have come from the north. There is an unwritten rule in Hopi that you don't speak of other people's clan aside from your own. So I can only speak for my clan, the Badger clan, the Great Badger clan. And we are of the northern clan groups that have migrated from the north. And the Hopi people, specifically these northern clan groups, such as Stewart's clan, have such a strong oral history tradition that they have stories tracing their roots back to the time of this initial migration into the North American continent. Hopi people know their cultural roots, their history, all the way back to the creation of man through the different phases of human evolution. So our knowledge goes that deep where we, as human people, began to walk upright. And then slowly, when the plate tectonics are still joined together, have able to move from one area to another. And so what do these stories say about the crossing of Beringia? There's this theory of the land bridge that scientists and archaeologists and historians refer to. I embrace that idea, the land bridge theory, because our information from human evolution goes that far. 
before the, the current oceans are now in place, we had the technology to use what people refer to as bamboo, those long retyped plant classifications that they tied together and were able to cross ocean waters instead of having to go through mountain ranges or other obstacles on the land. You can easily travel down the coast with a raft and get farther. And from there? And then, in my opinion, stop at a location and explore the landscape. And then you further explore inland. Over generations and generations, these people would have continued to move inland, across the landscape as hunters and gatherers, with certain population groups migrating in different directions, continuing to build families and communities, until eventually some groups decided to make the Mesa Verde region their home. So when you ask about where the people live prior to Mesa Verde and its magnificent architectural structures in that region, I would simply say that they were part of the Paleo-Indian people as in defined by archaeology and, and the basket makers. Historically, archaeologists have used these terms, such as Paleo-Indian or basket makers, to describe groups of people living in the Southwest. And you may still hear these terms today, especially in museums, as they have kind of been the standard for decades now. However, many organizations, such as Mesa Verde National Park, are transitioning away from this language, as it unfairly describes entire generations of people simply by an object that they commonly made. It tends to categorize these sophisticated people as primitive, or as museum specimen, instead of acknowledging their full, vibrant cultures and their long history on this landscape. Sometimes archaeologists are good at, you know, I guess separating the different materials uh, that have been left behind and, and give names. Hopi belief, and I'm, I'm sure with other Pueblo belief, we, we consider them to be all the same in all, all the same group, and they have simply evolved over time and evolved using the technology at the time to gain insights into the engineering aspects of building. So to me, they're all the same. It's just a different time in, in the course of our Earth timeline that they simply evolved to better themselves in, in trying to sustain themselves. Now remember, the Badger Clan at Hopi is just one of the various tribal clan groups who descend from Mesa Verde. We didn't come from the Bering Straits, and we didn't come through Alaska. This is TJ. My name is Thelma Jean Atsi. I go by TJ Atsi, and I'm a former park ranger at Mesa Verde National Park. I am a descendant from the ancient people who used to live there. I am Laguna Pueblo and I currently live here in Mancus, Colorado. TJ's oral history within Laguna tells of a different story than that of Stewart's at Hopi. Through oral and tradition history about the people from Mesa Verde and a descendant as a Laguna Pueblo member, we've always been at Mesa Verde. We are a distinct and different group of people. We emerged from Mother Earth. So through our stories, we were already here 
it was just when the time was right that we emerged and we were already at Mesa Verde. We were already home. The origin stories of the Mesa Verde descendants are as diverse and unique as the people themselves. As far as archaeological, anthropological, historical view of where the people at Mesa Verde came from, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer because everyone that you talk to who is a descendant from Mesa Verde will give you a different perspective, will give you a different history and story. There are other plebos through, again, stories and individuals that I have met have said that they have come from the east. They have come up from Grand Canyon, but how they got to where they were originally, I'm sure they have their own stories based on their traditional and oral upbringing. There's still so much that hasn't been proven, or perhaps that can never be proven, with material research, about these ancient migrations of people. And evidence of one migration route doesn't mean that the others weren't also happening at the same time or other times. These different hypotheses of how the Americas were first occupied, none of them are necessarily mutually exclusive. There's nothing saying that there was only one possible way that this happened. All of them could have happened. We're talking about a really extreme environment today. And most of Laryngia is, is no longer present, right? Because of rising sea levels, there's a huge portion of this landmass that we cannot access anymore. And so archaeological evidence that it existed there at one point in time is now lost to us basically forever. As scientific methods change and technology improves, humans are able to learn more and more about the past. It is a huge topic. It's really complex. You know, I think one of the really important things to think about is, and to understand is that this is a somewhat of a constantly changing story. There are more people working on doing research on this period of, of human history today than ever before. And because of that, the rate at which our understanding about Ice Age period humans and people's ways of life, the rate at which that's changing is really mind-boggling. So I think that that tells us a couple of things. One, this is a really important story that people all over the world are very interested in. The second thing is that we don't know the whole story, that there's a lot more to learn about the past, really. And so just because we think that we understand the general route or the timing that is related to how the Americas were first occupied, but with new evidence and new data that emerges next year, five years from now, our understanding of the past may completely change. And that's one of the really cool things about archaeology and about science in general, is that there's always new data, there's always new research that's happening and telling us new pieces of the story that we then have to kind of recalibrate our understanding of, of what was happening in the past. And as more efforts are made to include Indigenous people in this research and to lean into their wealth of knowledge from oral histories and oral traditions, It'll be fascinating to see how our perspective of this pivotal chapter in human history changes and unfolds. Migration 
And human movement is really a part of what it means to be us, what it means to be human. Even though we don't see that in our daily lives today, this idea of migration is deeply rooted in oral histories and oral stories of indigenous communities really around the planet. And, and it's so deeply ingrained in what it means to be human. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and our music is by David Morella. Whether you're currently visiting Mesa Verde National Park, plan to visit, or simply want to learn more about this special place, check out the Mesa Top Loop audio tour put together by Mesa Verde National Park to hear more about the different periods of life on the landscape of Mesa Verde. Download or stream this multi-part tour now on Apple Podcasts or visit nps.gov forward slash M-E-V-E to find a transcript. You can also find that link on our website, mesaverdevoices.org, as well as additional information about Beringia and these ancient migration routes. Special thanks to Jonathan Till, Mark Varian, Spencer Burke, and Lyle Belenqua for your help and research for this episode. And thank you to Dr. Jesse Toon, Stuart B. Koyeyamtiwa, and TJ Atzi for sharing your insights with us. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.